Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. I host the New Ventures podcast to help people starting climate initiatives learn from others who are already progressed in these paths. Today, we're going to talk about how buildings need to be redesigned in the age of climate change. And our guest for today to do this is Ms. Sumita Singha, who is a chartered architect with a passion for the environment, equity, and ethics. She has received the most excellent order of the British Empire for services to architecture in 2021. There are many other credentials I could speak about to introduce her, but the two I will mention are that she's a non-executive director in the NHS and has set up the Architects for Change, the Equality Forum, the Royal Institute of British Architects. Welcome, Sumita. Thank you very much for having me. Let's start by talking about ecologic architect. You specialize in sustainable participatory and community projects. What does that mean practically? That means that we try to involve the community in building sustainability. So the thing is that, you know, you can't do everything on your own. We use participatory design. We use community engagement to try and get people enthusiastic about the project and take ownership of the project. And it also means that in practice, we involve ecological governance and people concerns in all that we do. This is like, you know, you've probably heard of environmental social governance, ESG, part of financial investment. Here, I think of like building investment. So how can we bring those, the ESG principles into building our future? Well, that's an interesting way of putting it. One of the problems with the ESG framework in financial uh, investments, of course, the uh, you know it can mean many things to many people. So perhaps it will be just useful to give us some examples of projects where you have applied these principles. Yes, of course. The problem with ESG has become that everybody is doing ESG and then there is like no special thing about it. But I've been doing this now for like 30 years, trying to get clients and community involved in projects that I do. Examples of projects where I've done that include residential and community projects where we have used community ideas and got them engaged into thinking about design and then actually started building things according to what people told us to build, not what we think is good for the people. So there's a reversal of role in that sense that it's the people who direct what we design and build, not us saying, oh, we're the architects, we know everything. So some there are so many projects where I've used this principle. I built a seating using straw bales for the community place at the University of Buckinghamshire. And again, the first thing we did was get people thinking about the design of this seating that we were going to build with the straw bales. How was it going to be decorated? How high was it going to be? How many tiers did we want? Which place did we want to site it? And when people start to do that, they feel it's their project, something they have done rather than something that's been done to them. So that was one project. In all my sort of residential work, I've got the clients really involved in the design and I've followed them. I know projects where the architect says, no, you can't paint a wall yellow. It has to be white. 
or some piece of furniture has to be there. There should be no furniture at all in a space so that it looks like pure space. So I don't go on all those things because I think the space is actually owned by the people that use it. I mean, just imagine if someone came to you and started this kind of spatial dictatorship telling you what to do and where to place your furniture and how to paint your rooms. I don't believe in that. I believe in sort of equity, as you mentioned. So the client is an equitable part of the design process. I've also used this with my design charity, Charushila, where we have worked in India, Palestine, Venezuela, and also projects in the UK. And actually, this participatory element is even more in those kind of projects because once we set up the projects, we do the work with the people, we then leave. So the people have to have enough sense of ownership to take the projects forward. They also start new projects on their own and we're not there to mother them. They need to do that on their own. So it's an essential part of offering design services that you get your clients and community involved in the design process. I understand that. And I'm glad you brought up Tarushala. But one of the things in Tarushala, which I wanted to ask you is that I understand you use underused public spaces. That sounds to me a very interesting thing. And maybe you can explain a little bit about that. Yeah. So in a lot of modern architecture, the architects have done the building and then they've got these acres of green lawn surrounding it. Nothing's happening to it. Sometimes these spaces are even locked up and said, well, you can't go in there because you'll ruin the grass. Who is this space for? Um, it's not a democratic understanding of space or use of space. So these sort of spaces are underused. There are also spaces which have become overused because junk has collected in them. People have been littering in, in those spaces. You know, it's not used properly in that sense. Um, so there are all these sort of underused and overused spaces, which are actually not for community benefit. Jarushila, we try and find these spaces, and usually they are like either they are causes of irritation or they're eyesores. We try and clear up these spaces and put uh, something together which is actually useful for the community. This charity work, I do it for free. And I use the charity status of Charushila to bring in donations for that work. And we've done this sort of project successfully, for example, in Palestine. We, well, we got rid of a space which had years and years of junk collecting on it. We even found a dead dog underneath all that. It was really horrible. And it was right in the middle of housing. So we cleared that space and made that space into a small garden where children could play they could relax, they could even do their homework in that space. They hadn't had this kind of space ever in their lives. You know, all these little kids that were growing up looking at this pile of rubbish that was there. With another space also in Palestine, we created seating where the school bus drops children off so the mothers could go and sit there and wait for their kids. There was nowhere to sit. It was again next to sort of some kind of overgrown, um, disused uh, public space. It was in the public realm, but it was completely disused. So we try and transform spaces like that. And so that our audience knows you a little better, apart from being an architect, you're an artist and author, right? And a very prolific author at that. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about these alternate careers you have. Yes, I like to write. 
I've written since I was a small child growing up in India and also when I came to the UK. So writing has been an essential part of my life. I teach architecture, so I've written books on architecture where I've sort of put together my thoughts. So I've got six books on architecture. The first book, which is called Architecture for Rapid Change and Scarce Resources, came out of a course I was teaching at London Metropolitan University. And that is now in its second reprint, and it's been adopted for design professionals in the US and in the UK. So that's a great thing. The second book was Autotelic Architect. And also that's where I reflected on the status of architects and the role of architects within society. After that came Women in Architecture, four-volume publication, and that came out of my work running a course called Women in Architecture in Milan. And uh, all that sort of thinking and writing came out of this, uh, into this four-volume encyclopedia. And then Future Healthcare Design, which was about how our healthcare spaces and buildings should be, included a history of the NHS as well. This was published during the pandemic. After Future Healthcare Design was published, the publishers said to me, we think that the pandemic is ending, so we need to write something about post-pandemic design. So along with a few other people, I think there were five of us, we co-wrote this book, which is about post-pandemic architecture, and it was published in 2021. Of course, the pandemic didn't end then. I think we were being overly optimistic. But anyway, you know, it recorded our thoughts about how we should design once the pandemic ends. After that, in the middle, there was a book about our work in Venezuela and Palestine, which was published as well. And then now I'm writing a book about practicing women architects. So it's basically a very pragmatic, practical book about what women need to know in order to practice as architect. And this came out of the course that I teach in Milan. And as far as being an artist is concerned, I work two commissions. Before that, I used to just paint. I got several awards. Um, I was even given an award for best child artist in whole of Asia. Yeah, you know, I had so many awards as a, for my art. I just thought, well, when I grow up, I want to be an artist. But my father didn't think that was going to be enough. And um, so he suggested that I get into a technical area so i chose architecture which was a mixture of art and technical subject combined you know i continue to paint when i can in my spare time my paintings have been exhibited and my photographs have been exhibited as well and some of my books have been illustrated with my the cover has been from the paintings i've done fair enough to mention that because the queen died it might be relevant to say that one of my murals that i did for my school in Delhi was actually inaugurated by her. Talking about school in India and finished your degree and then you started working. I mean, you came to Cambridge. Yes, I did, yeah. I finished my degree in, in India. So architecture is in three parts. Part one, part two, which are the main bits. And then part three, which is where you work, do your sort of final exams, which allow you to register as an architect. It's a very complicated process. So after you finish your part one, which is three years, you have a year out where you work for a year. And then you do two years of postgraduate studies. 
then you work for one year and then after having finished 24 months minimum of work experience then you sit for these exams so that you can register it's like the medical profession you have to prove that you are qualified you know enough about law technical subjects about planning etc before you start practicing because the title of the architect is protected in most countries i did my part 1 and part 2 in india at that time where i did my part 1 and 2 uh, it they the, that school was uh, validated by the royal institute of british architects so i could just bring those two qualifications when I came to the UK, I got a scholarship to study an MPhil in environmental design. So that was 30 years ago, and nobody knew what environmental design was. They say, what, what is the strange degree you did at Cambridge? You know, then I would talk about climate crisis and all that, but 30 years ago, nobody was talking about these issues, how to design, keeping climate in mind, what materials to use. So I did that MPhil. And then because I was going to settle in the UK and work here, so I did my part three in London. That's the sort of how I became registered. But I did my architecture, the part one and part two, which is the main bit in India. Fascinating. You know, listening to you speak, I'm just reminded almost of a personal journey. Because when I studied civil engineering, I wish I just studied environmental engineering. At that point, environmental engineering courses were not so much available. Nobody was talking about environmental engineering. You know, if I had to live my life all over again, that's exactly what I would have done. I mean, 30 years back, as you said, you did projects, your MPhil in, in environmental design. I must say that you definitely saw things coming. Which brings me to one question that I wanted to ask you. Hearing you speak about how you get your inspiration of design, from the people who are going to stay in, in, in that place. Makes me think that in business, for example, one of the basic principles is to start thinking of building products from what your customer wants, not what you think your customer should want. But obviously that, it seems to be almost revolutionary in, in architecture thinking, right? Maybe you want to just help us understand that a shift in paradigm a little bit. Yes, for years and decades, architecture has been about like these iconic buildings. You know, you have something that looks really strange. It gets people talking about design. Some people hate this building. Some people love it. That was the way architecture was being talked about. It was never about how this building used. Can we use all of the space in this building? Is this accessible? Or disabled people how does it actually function so all these issues were not being discussed because you just wanted like a pure architecture you know it was almost like a piece of sculpture that you could go inside the inside didn't have any practical benefits there are several buildings and you go in there there's some awkward spaces bits of triangular spaces or curved spaces you think is that being used properly of course, you know, buildings have to have some sort of lovely shapes, attractive shapes, and that is exactly what attracts people to that building. You have to do some of that, but when that becomes the end rather than the means, that's where you get into problems. So the new way of thinking should be about how do people use the building? 
And particularly, I think we are much more aware of mental health, physical health, these sort of things which we weren't aware of. People with different neurodiversity will have different spaces that they react to. They will react to internal and external spaces in a different way to others. And in and, and that way, we're all neurodiverse. You know, that is the whole point of it. The building must be able to be inclusive and usable by everyone. I'm going to get down to more detail on the issues of healthcare that you already talked about. And I'm going to just start by saying something which is obvious, climate change will increase the demand for health services. In fact, the IPCC had a full chapter, a recent you know, adaptation report about it. Obviously, a lot of this will happen in Asia and Africa, where the health services are not as strong as it is in the Western world or in the developed world. But even here, you know, things will be the same. How should architects, say in the UK, be thinking about building new health services? Well, I think healthcare is one of our essential needs. The constitution of World Health Organization defines health as a basic need of human beings. And we should be thinking of diverse ways that we can offer healthcare. Healthcare may not be all the time offered through buildings, like we're having a podcast at the moment. Can healthcare be offered online? Can you have an online discussion with your consultant? And this actually is being given in many countries. Can you have a mobile that travels around to people rather than people coming to a building? It's the healthcare that comes to you. Again, this is being done in many countries as well as well as in the UK. We are not necessarily thinking about buildings, but we are thinking about how to make healthcare accessible. And so there's a difference. If you want to make healthcare accessible, there are different ways of doing that. But if you just concentrate on buildings, which are like static, fixed place, then you have to find ways of bringing people to that building. And that can be difficult, particularly in your poor countries, large countries like India, or just imagine a place like Afghanistan, which is suffering so much from the climate crisis, from war, and then the roads are all blown up or something. You're trying to bring people to a particular building. And these days, even hospitals get bombed and they're being destroyed deliberately by people that have no concern for human lives. I think we should be thinking in a diverse way about healthcare and how can we make it more accessible. And the other thing we should be trying to do is how do we retrofit our existing buildings, because climate crisis, wars, etc., mean that our buildings have to work differently. In my book, Healthcare Design, I wrote about a particular hospital which was in near Sudan, and that had to be designed in a certain way to avoid being bombed. It was hidden, and so people had to travel to it in a very secret way that people didn't know that it was a hospital building, otherwise it would get bombed and destroyed. Then how do we retrofit our buildings, the existing hospital buildings, very poor fabric, with the climate crisis coming, with floods, fire, etc. How do we make our hospital buildings secure? Because if you imagine people who go to the hospital, they're sick, they haven't got the physical energy to run. So if that building is in danger of collapsing, 
or it's not providing a comfortable environment, then it's no good. So we should think about retrofitting existing hospitals before we build more. Very interesting. And on the topic about thinking broadly about healthcare, we should also be thinking about the way offices and warehouses where people work, how they should be built or retrofitted so that people can be more healthy and need to go to hospitals less. Absolutely. I think the main thing with healthcare design that has um, come through is preventative care. In the past was like every little thing, you just went to the doctor or the hospital. And these days, it's about how to prevent people from turning up at the hospital. Because like one ambulance man, he described to me, he said, basically, if these days, if people sneeze, they get so scared, I've got something, they'll turn up at A&E. In the meanwhile, someone who actually really needs the A&E, for example, if they've got like heart failure or something, is not getting the care because someone's coming in saying, you know, I've got this sneezing. So they're actually preventing people from getting proper care. A lot of public health education has to go into stopping people from going into hospitals. How do we make people take care of themselves? Most people work, so the office environment is important. We should be thinking about office buildings, commercial spaces. How are they designed? Are they designed for health and wellness? So one of the things is ventilation. How well is ventilated? Particularly with the COVID pandemic, which was being spread by the air, it's key that we get ventilation right. And obviously, you know, natural light, views to the outside, and people being given time to go outside and relax. There was this a scandal about a major online company that wasn't giving time for their workers to have breaks, even to go to the toilet. So these sort of things have to be actually stamped out completely. Because if you're working, your work environment has to be conducive mentally and physically to the work that you're doing. You need breaks, maybe you need refreshments, you need a water, you need to be able to go outside, you need to actually have views. You know, some of these offices don't even have natural light, you know, all completely artificially lit. And that's really bad for your health. And most people work, as you said, and they're increasingly working from home. So how should we be thinking about homes? Yeah, I think the same. It's the same principle. We need to think about ventilation. If there's sort of zoonotic diseases being spread through the air, we need to still think about ventilation. And if in the home, for example, you've got other staff members coming in and working in your home, you need to think about how you're providing welfare for them. So the same principles, can they go outside? Can they see outside? Do they have natural light? I think if people are going to be working at least part of the week from homes, then the homes need to have a space where they can work from. I teach, and many of my students were working from home during the pandemic, and they didn't have proper chairs or tables. Now, that's really bad for your postures. If you're sitting at a dining table and trying to do CAD drawings on your computer, you know, it's not the proper height. Then after a whole days of work, 
you're just going to be so tired because your whole body is aching. So we need to think about ergonomic furniture for people if they're going to work from home. And obviously all these environmental needs are really, really important. So as I've said before, homes need to be also retrofitted. I'm part of a panel which is looking at how to make social housing better. We're looking into these issues because it's mostly the poor that don't have the space, that don't have proper home. The roof is leaking or there's water coming and there's mold inside the homes. How can they actually even work from that home? So as you know, that during the pandemic, a lot of ethnic minority population got affected because they were living in very poorly ventilated homes and they would have this public facing job and they would come back and infect the rest of their families because you know there was no ventilation in their homes or their homes had mold or something in it. I just think it's so essential. Even if you're not working from home, our homes should be places where we can feel healthy and poor people don't have that opportunity. So we should be really looking at social housing. You know, during the pandemic, for example, it was the frontline workers that were crucial, you know, delivering food, delivering medicine, everything you needed frontline workers, even in the hospital, nurses, et cetera, the front desk receptionists, the technicians in the clinics, et cetera. They're all public facing workers who probably were living in very poor conditions. So a lot of them died in the UK. It's essential. It's a moral obligation that we think about healthy homes. I'm glad that you brought up this issue about social housing, because my next question to you would have been that, uh, look, it's not just about people who are uh, office workers. It's also about people who deliver food and construction workers. And I guess we don't have to only think about buildings. We have to think about public spaces because you know, they would be exposed to high temperature and UV light in this context of climate change. Yeah. When we go outside, for example, we need to think about shade. We need to think about seating. If it's too hot, you need to sit down. You need shade. If it's pouring, you also need some kind of cover. So shade is very important. You need water fountains. I remember there's now a lot more water fountains for people to drink water from. You know, there's the problem with plastic bottles pollution. But if you say to people, well, I bring a bottle where you can fill it anywhere. There are so many fountains. In fact, during Victorian times, there were so many fountains in London and they disappeared. And then there was this plastic pandemic which started with everybody using plastic bottles and that littering the streets. So the simple solution is bring those fountains back. Let people fill up their own water bottles. And also fountains as a sort of ornamental feature is great because it creates a cooling effect around it. It creates a mist of air, of water, vapor. And that's really great if you're around it in a very hot climate. You can instantly cool down. You can also plant trees to get more shade and they provide humidity and breeze as well. Wild meadows for biodiversity. You can plant flowers for mental health. And there's a little project I've done on a station platform where we've created a kitchen garden on the platform. So you get off the train, you can pick up some herbs for dinner, some spinach or whatever's growing there. You can take some home, leave some for the others. 
You can also bring your own plants and plant it there. There's enough space. So the community is involved in actually providing this biophilia. There's so many bees. It's absolutely amazing. So those sort of schemes which engage people in thinking more about their personal health outdoors is really great. On the topic of water fountains, for example, I know that in Cambridge Trumpington, there used to be water fountains right down Trumpington Street. I'm not sure they are any more operational, because I think that's a very important point. We will go over to the next section where we will move away from the topic of uh, healthcare. But before that, I'm just reflecting a little bit on what you said. And Welcome to the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate firm and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. I host the New Ventures podcast to help people starting climate initiatives learn from others who are already progressed in these parts. Today, we're going to talk about how buildings need to be redesigned in the age of climate change. And our guest for today to do this is Ms. Sumita Singha, who is a chartered architect with a passion for the environment, equity, and ethics. She has received the most excellent order of the British Empire for services to architecture in 2021. There are many other credentials I could speak about to introduce her, but the two I will mention are that she's a non-executive director in the NHS and has set up the Architects for Change, the Equality Forum, the Royal Institute of British Architects. Welcome, Smita. Thank you very much for having me. Moving on to the little bit more broader issues, buildings have to become net zero. At the same time as we are living through this energy crisis and living crisis in here in the UK or all over the world, they have to reduce energy use, right? So, you know, what tools and technologies are available today at the disposal of architects? Well, I'm not a sort of person who likes to just reinvent the wheel all the time. What I'd say is just go back into vernacular construction or traditional construction and see what they did. Because the way modern architecture is, it sort of emerged around the sort of end of 19th century, 20th century, that sort of era. In 100 years, the way we live changed. We became like Le Corbusier says, it's a machine for living in. So the home became this machine and we became the workers, not even robots living in this space with no idea about how we should use the space. Everything was being dictated by unknown person, by the architect who says we need to walk in this corridor in a certain way. You need to use the stairs. You need to not use the green areas, keep away from the green areas, etc. What I'm saying is go back. Look at what worked in the past. Use those same materials. We have enough materials. We don't need to invent algae walls. We have a good palette of building materials. Use those. With construction techniques, again, we have many time-tested construction techniques, including timber. There are, of course, new ways of constructing with timber that are coming through, like the CLT, which basically is cross-laminated timber, which is pieces of timber which are joined like um, 90 degrees to each other, each panel, and they become really strong and you can use them to support structures. And then energy efficiency is really, really important. And how do we ventilate the building? Coming back to the basics of a building, what it should do. It must be robust, it must look good, it must be functional. Somewhere we forgot about the functionality and started more thinking more about the beauty of it. We need to think 
more of these things. So rather than reinventing the wheel and trying to find this new novelty every time, let's go back and see what's worked and use those. Well, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of timber because we had uh, last year a gentleman called Kevin Hill on our podcast. He runs a business out of Singapore. I believe he's also doing a project in the UK at this point in time. And he's been using sustainable timber for mostly uh, tourism projects all over the world. I get the point about not reinventing the wheel and not looking for the technology fix, which I think is both important points. But architects need to embrace new principles of design or should they go back in the past and dig out what was used. What are your thoughts around that? We're obviously not going back to the past way of living. You know, we're not an agrarian society anymore in that sense. There are, you know, agriculture has become like mechanized and people are not having to do little tasks in, in the fields that they used to. But we need to think about designs that are based on sustainability. That means about future use. They need to be easy to repair and reuse parts of the building, modern methods of construction, these are called, but basically it means almost like prefabricated bits that can be taken out of a building. How can we reuse it? How can we repair it? There was this thing with the iPhones. Well, when something happens with a phone, you can't repair it. You have to get a new one. We can't keep doing that with the buildings because we are running out of building materials on the planet. You know, we're running out of clay, we're running out of sand, and we're running out of gravel. You know, we had 100 billion tons of this excavated out of the earth. Most of these materials, these three at least, are non-renewable. So we can't think all the time of building new. So we have to think, how can we build so that we can reuse it? I mean, timber buildings are great because at least you can um, dismantle it or think of dismantling it and perhaps reusing it. But it has to be done from day one. It's not that what's happened now is we've got these buildings, we're thinking, oh, what should we do with these bricks? What should we do with that concrete pillar that was left behind? And now we're actually 24% of our landfill is filled up with things from building sites because we don't know what to do with them. We need to think from day one, when this building is demolished, if ever it is, how can we reuse it? It's happening in Sweden, for example. They label parts of it. They're even selling bits of the building online. So there's a scheme there starting up. It's just like you have vintage clothes at home. You can sell them online. You've got vintage shoes. There's a good sort of market, circular market, where you can sell this stuff. But that doesn't happen with buildings. You know, Even with bricks, for example, you need to make sure that you've got rid of the mortar. But if it's cement mortar, a lot of it sticks to the brick and you can't use it. Some of the older buildings, for example, use lime mortar. So lime is easier to get off a brick and you can reuse the brick. So we have to think, we have to go back to the past and see what works. And I know a lot of modern buildings are now being constructed with lime, not just because it's eco-friendly and it's easier to recycle, but also it allows the building to move a little bit. So you get rid of movement joints, which used to be, you know, with cement buildings, you need movement joints, as you will know as an engineer. But with lime, they can you not have it because the lime is flexible enough to allow the building to move tiny bits that it wants to. And that's also actually making the building safer. These sort of principles, we need to kind of go back to the basics and think about it. We need to discard this idea that 
good architecture is something that looks a bit weird. That kind of mentality of having architecture that's always sort of making waves rather than being usable by people, rather than thinking about sustainability, those kind of ideas have to go. I mean, the architecture can be absolutely fantastic. It can look really wonderful if we take the time to actually think about proper design. I get a lot of this. A question that comes up in my mind is that some of this can be thought about in the context of new house. What about for the existing stock of houses? I think I saw a scheme recently in Vienna where the inside of the house is flexible so that it can be rearranged very easily. So when the family, say with small children, then the children are growing up, becoming teenagers. Then the teenager leave home, couple or the single parents left behind. How do they use that space? So there are different ways of configuring that space so that you can use it until the end of your life. That's one way of dealing with keeping flexible design in mind. I mean, I've mentioned retrofit enough number of times for existing stock of housing. Repair is essential before you take down a building see if it can be repaired and reused and modify the home. You can easily put little things where, you know, you become older, you can put little handrails, switches, or, you know, the home can be made intelligent so that it's also uh, part of your healthcare. So it's kind of recording the internal temperature. So this work that I'm doing about the Better Social Housing Review panel that I'm in, we are thinking of providing people, for example, with iPads, which monitor the internal temperature. And if something goes wrong, then immediately the management company can come and say, maybe there's something wrong. So the existing housing can be a useful tool to pinpoint areas where it's not working properly and then can um, see how it can be repaired and modified so that it becomes livable. I'm glad that you brought up this topic of circularity. We had on our podcast Kiran Parida last year, whom I think you know. She's really brought this point out about how sand is running out and how we should incorporate circular economy concepts in building design. My final question on this topic before I move to conclusion is there is this concept of green premium. Does building green and sustainable, does it mean a higher prices for first-time buyers? Absolutely not. Because if we are to get to net zero by whatever day, I mean, it keeps changing with every new prime minister, but I think it should be 2030 and no more. That should be where the buck stops. And if we want to get to net zero by that time, everything that we're doing, whether it's homes or offices or warehouses, anything should be built, keeping that in mind. And it should be affordable because if it's not affordable, Who's going to actually, you know, want to buy that? And one of the problems with retrofit is that there is 20% VAT on uh, retrofitted projects. Whereas if you build from scratch, demolishing and building new, then it's 0% VAT, which makes absolutely no sense. So in order that we actually make homes affordable for everyone, not just first-time buyers, we need to be thinking green. How can we retrofit, repair, and modify the home? That should be our way of thinking to going ahead because food, clothing, and shelter are basic needs, and everyone needs to be able to have those three. Obviously, very inspiring. And as we conclude this podcast, 
that what is your advice for younger architects? I know you've already written a book called Autotechnic Architect. I had to actually look up the meaning of the word autotechnic just to be very honest with you. And it's, it means a creative activity having an end in itself. Architects, it's not a creative activity with an end in itself. It's very practical. You know, what is your advice for younger architects? Yeah, I mean, the word autotelic was invented in the 19th century. My advice to a younger generation is what I've actually done myself, is diversify your income. I teach, I write, I design, and, you know, I offer consultancy services like you do. I'm constantly working, and it's great because I've got so many things going on. It keeps me really happy. So, and also gives me an income. So if I don't get design work, I know I've got teaching work to depend on. Or if I don't have teaching, I've got something else going on. So diversify your income. That's the main thing. And people say, don't put too many eggs in one basket. I actually say, put lots of eggs in many baskets. Actually spread yourself as much as your health and your circumstances allow. Make sure that you're doing many things in different places. You can be working internationally, you could be working in the UK. So it's about having a diversity of income, but also diversity of projects to do as well. And finally, learn from your mistakes. We all fail at one time or the other. How can you learn and get better at what you're doing. We're constantly, we can be doing that until we're 100. Never give up learning. So these three things I would suggest to young architects. And my final question to you is, you obviously want more women to come to the profession. What unique perspectives can women bring to the problems of the world, which incidentally are mostly created by men? Yeah. So the course I mentioned, which is called Women in Architecture, was really interesting because it included women from all parts of the world in it and also men. And some of the best comments actually came from men. They were telling me how the world could be different if more women were included in the design process. So the women constitute 50% of the population everywhere. It seems amazing that they're not involved in the decision-making of our cities. I mean, that is so basic, really. You know, you're excluding 50% of the population from having a decision-making process in the spaces that they live and work in or transport, for example. I remember how difficult it was for women with their buggies to actually get into London underground and use it properly. Now, of course, they made you know, most of the underground stations that were designed because in those days it was men working. So men would use the space. They never thought about women and children using that space. Now, of course, they're putting lifts in and the new London underground stations have lifts and they're very accessible. But that's the other thing about accessibility is because when you make spaces accessible for women, you're also making it accessible for disabled people, for older people, etc. So you're actually making the space more usable, more inclusive. Again, we should be thinking about making spaces that women use. And how do we do that? Because if you don't have women who come and tell you their lived experience of how they used a certain building or how they used a tube station, you're never going to get that view. You never understand. So you need to have women in your team who can then tell you what the problems they face. In fact, your team needs to be as diverse as possible. So you can get lots of different views. And we know that diversity means that it's better 
for creativity as well. You come up with better solutions. I think these perspectives, they're not unique to women. They are about being human and it's about complete accessibility and inclusivity. So if we can bring that into our creative process, we'll all be better off for it. As I'm hearing you speak, again, I'm trying to just internalize some of these things that you've said. What you're saying is that, you know, younger architect, you've given some fantastic life advice, just be practical about your income. But what you're saying is that there is an opportunity for younger architects, especially women architects, to come in, to dip into the past, to examine issues such as circularity of building materials, energy efficiency, using digital technologies. You gave the example of iPads used in buildings. To think holistically of not not only how buildings can reduce energy consumption, become more livable, become more affordable to people, but also reduce the carbon content, not only in the building, but in the embedded construction cycle. And I think that's a very inspiring thought. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree with you. It's not just the women doing it. We have to work with men, you know. Of course. With that, thank you very much, Sumita. Thank you, Sanjay, for having me. On that note, thank you very much. Follow me on LinkedIn, Medium, and Twitter to get fresh international perspectives of what people across the world are doing in this decade of climate action.